I'm Richard Figge, and this is for Reading Out Loud. Thanks for joining me. Tonight is the third day of Christmas, and on January 6th comes Twelfth Night, or Epiphany, or the Feast of the Three Kings. So as we come to the end of the Christmas season, I thought I'd share an abbreviated version of Henry Van Dyke's The Other Wise Man. This story is Van Dyke's edition and expansion of the account of the biblical Magi. It tells about a fourth wise man, a priest of the Magi named Artaban. Like the other Magi, he sees signs in the heavens proclaiming that a king has been born among the Jews. Like them, he sets out to see the newborn ruler, carrying treasures as gifts to the child, a sapphire, a ruby, and a pearl of great price. However, well, let's pick up where Artaban has set out on his way. All night long, Vazda, the swiftest of Artaban's horses, had been waiting, saddled and bridled in her stall, pawing the ground impatiently and shaking her bit as she shared the eagerness of her master's purpose, though she knew not its meaning. Before the birds had fully roused to their strong, high, joyful chant of morning song, before the white mist had begun to lift lazily from the plain, the other wise man was in the saddle, riding swiftly along the high road, which skirted the base of Mount Orontes westward. How close, how intimate is the comradeship between a man and his favorite horse on a long journey. It is a silent, comprehensive friendship, an intercourse beyond the need of words. Artaban must indeed ride wisely and well if he would keep the appointed hour with the other magi, for the route was a hundred and fifty parasangs, and fifteen was the utmost that he could travel in a day. But he knew Vazda's strength and pushed forward without anxiety, making the fixed distance every day, though he must travel late into the night and in the morning long before sunrise. He traversed the fertile fields of Konkabar, where the dust from the threshing floors filled the air with a golden mist, half hiding the huge temple of Astarte with its four hundred pillars. Over many a cold and desolate pass, crawling painfully along the wind-swept shoulders of the hills, down many a black mountain gorge, where the river roared and raced before him like a savage guide, across many a smiling vale, with terraces of yellow limestone full of vines and fruit trees, across the swirling floods of Tigris and the many channels of Euphrates, flowing yellow through the cornlands. Artaban pressed onward, until he arrived at nightfall on the tenth day beneath the shattered walls of populous Babylon. Vazda was almost spent, and Artaban would gladly have turned into the city to find rest and refreshment for himself and for her, but he knew that it was three hours' journey yet to the temple of the seven spheres, and he must reach the place by midnight if he would find his comrades waiting. So he did not halt, but rode steadily across the stubble fields. A grove of date palms made an island of gloom in the pale yellow sea. As she passed into the shadow, Vazda slackened her pace and began to pick her way more carefully. Near the farther end of the darkness, an access of caution seemed to fall upon her. She scented some danger or difficulty. It was not in her heart to fly from it, only to be prepared for it, and to meet it wisely as a good horse should do. The grove was close and silent as a tomb, 
Not a leaf rustled, not a bird sang. She felt her steps before her delicately, carrying her head low and sighing now and then with apprehension. At last she gave a quick breath of anxiety and dismay and stood stock still, quivering in every muscle, before a dark object in the shadow of the last palm tree. Artaban dismounted. The dim starlight revealed the form of a man lying across the road. His humble dress and the outline of his haggard face showed that he was probably one of the Hebrews who still dwelt in great numbers around the city. His pallid skin, dry and yellow as parchment, bore the mark of the deadly fever which ravaged the marshlands in the autumn. The chill of death was in his lean hand, and as Artaban released it, the arm fell back inertly upon the motionless breast. He turned away with a thought of pity, leaving the body to that strange burial which the Magians deemed most fitting, the funeral of the desert, from which the kites and vultures rise on dark wings and the beasts of prey slink furtively away. When they are gone, there is only a heap of white bones on the sand. But as he turned, a long, faint, ghostly sigh came from the man's lips. The bony fingers gripped the hem of the Magian's robe and held him fast. Artaban's heart leaped to his throat, not with fear, but with a dumb resentment at the importunity of this blind delay. How could he stay here in the darkness to minister to a dying stranger? What claim had this unknown fragment of human life upon his compassion or his service? If he lingered but an hour, he could hardly reach Borsippa at the appointed time. His companions would think he had given up the journey. They would go without him. He would lose his quest. But if he went on now, the man would surely die. If Artaban stayed, life might be restored. His spirit throbbed and fluttered with the urgency of the crisis. Should he risk the great reward of his faith for the sake of a single deed of charity? Should he turn aside, if only for a moment, from the following of the star to give a cup of cold water to a poor perishing Hebrew? God of truth and purity, he prayed, direct me in the holy path, the way of wisdom which thou only knowest. Then he turned back to the sick man. Loosening the grasp of his hand, he carried him to a little mound at the foot of the palm tree. He unbound the thick folds of the turban and opened the garment above the sunken breast. He brought water from one of the small canals nearby and moistened the sufferer's brow and mouth. He mingled a draught of one of those simple but potent remedies which he carried always in his girdle, for the Magians were physicians as well as astrologers, and poured it slowly between the colorless lips. Hour after hour he labored, as only a skillful healer of disease can do. At last the man's strength returned. He sat up and looked about him. Who art thou? he said, in the rude dialect of the country, and why hast thou sought me here to bring back my life? I am Artaban the Magian of the city of Ecbatana, and I am going to Jerusalem in search of one who is to be born king of the Jews, a great prince and deliverer of all men. I dare not delay any longer upon my journey, for the caravan that has waited for me may depart without me. But see, here is all that I have left of bread and wine, and here is a portion of healing herbs. When thy strength is restored, thou canst find the buildings of the Hebrews among the houses of Babylon. The Jew raised his trembling hand solemnly to heaven. Now may the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob bless and prosper the journey of the merciful, 
and bring him in peace to his desired haven. Stay, I have nothing to give thee in return, only this, that I can tell thee where the Messiah must be sought, for our prophets have said that he should be born not in Jerusalem, but in Bethlehem of Judah. May the Lord bring thee in safety to that place, because thou hast had pity upon the sick. It was already long past midnight. Artaban rode in haste, and Vazda, restored by the brief rest, ran eagerly through the silent plain and swam the channels of the river. She put forth the remnant of her strength and fled over the ground like a gazelle. But the first beam of the rising sun sent a long shadow before her as she entered upon the final stadium of the journey, and the eyes of Artaban, anxiously scanning the great mound of Nimrod and the Temple of the Seven Spheres, could discern no trace of his friends. Artaban rode swiftly around the hill. He dismounted and climbed to the highest terrace, looking out toward the west. But there was no sign of the caravan of the wise men, far or near. At the edge of the terrace he saw a little cairn of broken bricks, and under them a piece of papyrus. He caught it up and read, We have waited past the midnight and can delay no longer. We go to find the king. Follow us across the desert." Artaban sat down upon the ground and covered his head in despair. "'How can I cross the desert?' said he, with no food and with a spent horse. "'I must return to Babylon, sell my sapphire, and buy a train of camels and provision for the journey. I may never overtake my friends. Only God the Merciful knows whether I shall not lose the sight of the king because I tarried to show mercy.' There was a silence in the Hall of Dreams for I was listening to the story of the other wise man. Through this silence I saw, but very dimly, his figure passing over the weary undulations of the desert, high upon the back of his camel, rocking steadily onward like a ship over the waves. Through heat and cold the Magian moved steadily onward. Then I saw the gardens and orchards of Damascus, watered by the streams of Abana and Farpar, with their sloping swords inlaid with bloom, and their thickets of myrrh and roses. Through all these I have followed the figure of Artaban, moving steadily onward, until he arrived at Bethlehem. And it was the third day after the wise men had come to the place, and had found Mary and Joseph with the young child Jesus, and had laid their gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh at his feet. Then the other wise man drew near, weary but full of hope, bearing his ruby and his pearl to offer to the king. For now at last, he said, I shall surely find him, though I be alone, and later than my brethren. This is the place of which the Hebrew exile told me that the prophets had spoken, and here I shall behold the rising of the great light. But I must inquire about the visit of my brethren, and to what house the star directed them, and to whom they presented their tribute." The streets of the village seemed to be deserted, and Artaban wondered whether the men had all gone up to the hill pastures to bring down their sheep. From the open door of a cottage he heard the sound of a woman's voice singing softly. He entered and found a young woman hushing her baby to rest. She told him of the strangers from the far east who had appeared in the village three days ago, and how they said that a star had guided them to the place where Joseph of Nazareth was lodging with his wife and her newborn child, and how they had paid reverence to the child and given him many rich gifts. But the travelers disappeared again, she continued, as suddenly as they had come. 
We were afraid at the strangeness of their visit. We could not understand it. The man of Nazareth took the child and his mother and fled away that same night secretly, and it was whispered that they were going to Egypt. Ever since there has been a spell upon the village, something evil hangs over it. They say that the Roman soldiers are coming from Jerusalem to force a new tax from us, and the men have driven the flocks and herds far back among the hills and hidden themselves to escape it. Artaban listened to her gentle, timid speech, and the child in her arms looked up in his face and smiled, stretching out its rosy hands to grasp at the winged circle of gold on his breast. His heart warmed to the touch. It seemed like a greeting of love and trust to one who had traveled long in loneliness and perplexity, fighting with his own doubts and fears, and following a light that was veiled in clouds. Why might not this child have been the promised prince? he asked within himself, as he touched its soft cheek. Kings have been born ere now in lowlier houses than this, and the favorite of the stars may rise even from a cottage. But it has not seemed good to the God of wisdom to reward my search so soon and so easily. The one whom I seek has gone before me, and now I must follow the king to Egypt. She set food before him, the plain fare of peasants, but willingly offered, and therefore full of refreshment for the soul as well as for the body. Artaban accepted it gratefully, and as he ate, the child fell into a happy slumber and murmured sweetly in its dreams, and a great peace filled the room. But suddenly there came the noise of a wild confusion in the streets of the village, a shrieking and wailing of women's voices, a clangor of brazen trumpets and a clashing of swords and a desperate cry, The soldiers! The soldiers of Herod! They are killing our children! The young mother's face grew white with terror. She clasped her child to her bosom and crouched motionless in the darkest corner of the room, covering him with the folds of her robe, lest he should wake and cry. But Artaban went quickly and stood in the doorway of the house. His broad shoulders filled the portal from side to side, and the peak of his white cap all but touched the lintel. The soldiers came hurrying down the street with bloody hands and dripping swords. At the sight of the stranger in his imposing dress, they hesitated with surprise. The captain of the band approached the threshold to thrust him aside, but Artaban did not stir. His face was as calm as though he were watching the stars, and in his eyes there burned the steady radiance before which even the half-tamed hunting leopard shrinks, and the bloodhound pauses in his leap. He held the soldier silently for an instant, and then said in a low voice, I am all alone in this place, and I am waiting to give this jewel to the prudent captain who will leave me in peace. He showed the ruby, glistening in the hollow of his hand, like a great drop of blood. The captain was amazed at the splendor of the gem. The pupils of his eyes expanded with desire. He stretched out his hand and took the ruby. "'March on!' he cried to his men. "'There's no child here. The house is empty.' The clamor and the clang of arms passed down the street as the headlong fury of the chase sweeps by the secret covert where the trembling deer is hidden. Artaban re-entered the cottage. He turned his face to the east and prayed, God of truth, forgive my sin. I have said the thing that is not to save the life of a child, and two of my gifts are gone. I have spent for man that which was meant for God. Shall I ever be worthy to see the face of the king? But the voice of the woman, weeping for joy in the shadow behind him, said very gently, Because thou hast saved the life of my little one, may the Lord bless thee and keep thee. 
The Lord make his face to shine upon thee, and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee, and give thee peace. Again there was a silence in the hall of dreams, deeper and more mysterious than the first interval, and I understood that the years of Artaban were flowing very swiftly under the stillness, and I caught only a glimpse here and there of the river of his life shining through the mist that concealed its course. I saw him again at the foot of the pyramids, which lifted their sharp points into the intense saffron glow of the sunset sky, changeless moments of the perishable glory and the imperishable hope of man. He looked up into the face of the crouching sphinx and vainly tried to read the meaning of the calm eyes and the smiling mouth. Was it indeed the mockery of all effort and all aspiration, as Tigranes said, the cruel jest of a riddle that has no answer, of a search that can never succeed? Or was there a touch of pity and encouragement in that inscrutable smile, a promise that even the defeated should attain a victory, and the disappointed should discover a prize, and the ignorant should be made wise, and the blind should see, and the wandering should come into the haven at last. I saw him again in an obscure house of Alexandria, taking counsel with a Hebrew rabbi. The venerable man, bending over the rolls of parchment on which the prophecies of Israel were written, read aloud the pathetic words which foretold the sufferings of the promised Messiah, the despised and rejected of men, the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And remember, my son, said he, fixing his eyes upon the face of Artaban, the king whom thou seekest is not to be found in a palace, not among the rich and powerful. If the light of the world and the glory of Israel had been appointed to come with the greatness of earthly splendor, it must have appeared long ago. For no son of Abraham will ever again rival the power which Joseph had in the palaces of Egypt, or the magnificence of Solomon throned between the lions in Jerusalem. But the light for which the world is waiting is a new light, the glory that shall rise out of patient and triumphant suffering. And the kingdom which is to be established forever is a new kingdom, the royalty of unconquerable love. I do not know how this shall come to pass, nor how the turbulent kings and peoples of the earth shall be brought to acknowledge the Messiah and pay homage to him. But this I know, those who seek him will do well to look among the poor and the lowly, the sorrowful and the oppressed. So I saw the other wise man again and again, traveling from place to place and searching among the people of the dispersion, with whom the little family from Bethlehem might perhaps have found a refuge. He passed through countries where famine lay heavy upon the land, and the poor were crying for bread. He made his dwelling in plague-stricken cities, where the sick were languishing in the bitter companionship of helpless misery. He visited the oppressed and the afflicted in the gloom of subterranean prisons, and the crowded wretchedness of slave markets, and the weary toil of galley ships. In all this populous and intricate world of anguish, though he found none to worship, he found many to help. He fed the hungry, and clothed the naked, and healed the sick, and comforted the captive. And the years passed more swiftly than the weaver's shuttle that flashes back and forth through the loom, while the web grows and the pattern is completed. Then, at last, I heard the end of the story of the other wise man. Three and thirty years of the life of Artaban had passed away, 
and he was still a pilgrim and a seeker after light. His hair, once darker than the cliffs of Zagros, was now white as the wintry snow that covered them. His eyes, that once flashed like flames of fire, were dull as embers smoldering among the ashes. Worn and weary and ready to die, but still looking for the king, he had come for the last time to Jerusalem. He had often visited the holy city before, and had searched all its lanes and crowded hovels and black prisons without finding any trace of the family of Nazarenes who had fled from Bethlehem long ago. But now it seemed as if he must make one more effort, and something whispered in his heart that at last he might succeed. It was the season of Passover. The city was thronged with strangers. The children of Israel, scattered in far lands, had returned to the temple for the great feast, and there had been a confusion of tongues in the narrow streets for many days. But on this day a singular agitation was visible in the multitude. The sky was veiled with a portentous gloom. Currents of excitement seemed to flash through the crowd. A secret tide was sweeping them all one way. The clatter of sandals and the soft, thick sound of thousands of bare feet shuffling over the stones flowed unceasingly along the streets that leads to the Damascus Gate. Artaban joined a group of people from his own country, Parthian Jews, who had come up to keep the Passover, and inquired of them the cause of the tumult and where they were going. We are going, they answered, to a place called Golgotha, outside the city walls where there is to be an execution. Have you not heard what has happened? Two famous robbers are to be crucified, and with them another, called Jesus of Nazareth, a man who has done many wonderful works among the people, so that they love him greatly. But the priests and elders have said that he must die, because he gave himself out to be the Son of God, and Pilate has sent him to the cross, because he said he was the King of the Jews. How strangely these familiar words fell upon the tired heart of Artaban! They had led him for a lifetime over land and sea, and now they came to him mysteriously, like a message of despair. The king had arisen, but he had been denied and cast out. He was about to perish. Perhaps he was already dying. Could it be the same who had been born in Bethlehem thirty-three years ago, at whose birth the star had appeared in heaven, and of whose coming the prophets had spoken? Artaban's heart beat unsteadily with that troubled, doubtful apprehension which is the excitement of old age. But he said within himself, The ways of God are stranger than the thoughts of men, and it may be that I shall find the king at last in the hands of his enemies, and shall come in time to offer my pearl for his ransom before he dies. So the old man followed the multitude with slow and painful steps toward the Damascus gate of the city. Just beyond the entrance of the guardhouse, a troop of Macedonian soldiers came down the street, dragging a young girl with torn dress and disheveled hair. As the Magian paused to look at her with compassion, she broke suddenly from the hands of her tormentors and threw herself at his feet, clasping him around the knees. She had seen his white cap and the winged circle on his breast. "'Have pity on me,' she cried, "'and save me for the sake of the God of purity. I also am a daughter of the true religion, which is taught by the Magi. My father was a merchant of Parthia, but he is dead, and I am seized for his debts to be sold as a slave. Save me from worse than death.' Artaban trembled. It was the old conflict in his soul, which had come to him in the palm grove of Babylon and in the cottage at Bethlehem. 
the conflict between the expectation of faith and the impulse of love. Twice the gift which he had consecrated to the worship of religion had been drawn to the service of humanity. This was the third trial, the ultimate probation, the final and irrevocable choice. Was it his great opportunity or his last temptation? He could not tell. One thing only was sure to his divided heart. To rescue this helpless girl would be a true deed of love. And is not love the light of the soul? He took the pearl from his bosom. Never had it seemed so luminous, so radiant, so full of tender, living luster. He laid it in the hand of the slave. This is thy ransom, daughter. It is the last of my treasures which I kept for the king. While he spoke, the darkness of the sky deepened, and shuddering tremors ran through the earth, heaving convulsively, like the breast of one who struggles with mighty grief. The walls of the houses rocked to and fro, stones were loosened and crashed into the street, dust clouds filled the air, the soldiers fled in terror, reeling like drunken men. But Artaban and the girl whom he had ransomed crouched helpless beneath the wall of the praetorium. What had he to fear? What had he to hope? He had given away the last remnant of his tribute for the king. He had parted with the last hope of finding him. The quest was over, and it had failed. But even then that thought, accepted and embraced, there was peace. It was not resignation. It was not submission. It was something more profound and searching. He knew that all was well, because he had done the best that he could from day to day. He had been true to the light that had been given to him. He had looked for more, and if he had not found it, if a failure was all that came out of his life, doubtless that was the best that was possible. He had not seen the revelation of life everlasting, incorruptible, and immortal, but he knew that even if he could live his earthly life over again, it could not be otherwise than it had been. One more lingering pulsation of the earthquake quivered through the ground. A heavy tile, shaken from the roof, fell and struck the old man on the temple. He lay breathless and pale, with his gray head resting on the young girl's shoulder and the blood trickling from the wound. As she bent over him, fearing that he was dead, there came a voice through the twilight, very small and still, like music sounding from a distance, in which the notes are clear, but the words are lost. The girl turned to see if someone had spoken from the window above them, but she saw no one. Then the old man's lips began to move, as if in answer, and she heard him say in the Parthian tongue, Not so, my lord, for when saw I thee hungered and fed thee, or thirsty, and gave thee drink? When saw I thee a stranger, and took thee in, or naked, and clothed thee? When saw I thee sick, or in prison, and came unto thee? Three and thirty years have I looked for thee, but I have never seen thy face, nor ministered to thee, my king. He ceased, and the sweet voice came again, and again the maid heard it very faint and far away, but now it seemed as though she understood the words. Verily I say unto thee, Inasmuch as thou hast done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, thou hast done it unto me. A calm radiance of wonder and joy lighted the pale face of Artaban, like the first ray of dawn on a snowy mountain peak. 
A long breath of relief exhaled gently from his lips. His journey was ended. His treasures were accepted. The other wise man had found the king. You've been listening to The Other Wise Man by Henry Van Dyke. I'm Richard Figge, and this has been for Reading Out Loud. Wishing you joy and peace in the new year. I hope you'll join me again next week. Be well, be happy, stay safe. All the best. 